So there's a famous and almost definitely apocryphal story about Emerson and Thoreau. Thoreau's in jail for some kind of civil disobedience. And Emerson visits him in jail and says, Henry, why are you here? And Thoreau says, Ralph, why aren't you here? And even though it's it's kind of not true, I like it. And I think about it sometimes in terms of getting fired uh, or parting ways, you know, not entirely amicably with one's employers, which has happened to me here and there. And I, I, a journalist one time was interviewing me and he said, why does that happen to you all the time? And I really wanted to say, why doesn't it happen to you ever? Do you think maybe that's an indication you're kind of going with the flow? So Mike Pesca, who does not go with the flow, joins us after the news. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. There are many reasons why I, I needed to play that song at the beginning of this conversation with Mike Pesca, including the fact that he's sort of been stuck between stations for a while, uh, although no longer. Uh, I don't even know we talk about stations anymore in the world of podcasting and digital life and all that stuff. And the other reason I had to play it is quite some time before Mike Pesca and I knew each other, we were at the same Hold Steady concert in Brooklyn. We, I mean, we sort of figured that out in reverse uh, but uh, so, I mean, you know, obviously you're bonded forever by something like that. So uh, Mike Pesca is here with us. Welcome back to our airwaves and your digital whatever they call them waves. 
Thank you for having me, Colin. Thank you for helping me to stay positive. To quote, <laughs> I think the next Hold Steady album right. that came out. That was the other song I was considering. Uh, McPants will will back me up on that. So, Gene, uh, get ready for for what I believe is uh, is a one here. But just to refresh everybody's memories, uh, it's like February seventeenth or so, about a year ago. We see uh, Mike Pesca having just done battle with a Balrog. He's clinging to a little piece of rock, and then we hear this. He slips into darkness, and we all thought he was gone. We never, never see him again. Uh, it turns out uh, that uh, that was close to true, but not exactly true. Uh, and uh, he has now returned with the gist, which is said to be the longest-running daily news podcast. I don't know who is going to disagree with that exactly, uh, but he was <laughs> he was gone for eleven months, uh, and he's back. We'll talk a little bit uh, about um, all of that, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, first of all, um, well, we should just briefly revisit the fact, and I have no interest in relitigating this whole thing. But you were on Slate mm-hmm. for you were on Slate for a long time. You had some real disagreements in Slate. A lot of them took pl- place. It turned out on Slack channels. I think we all know Slack isn't really good for us. Uh, and and it was sort of about the idea of like you know spirited free speech, whether it's possible to use certain words citationally uh, for by journalists as opposed to flinging them around harmfully. And that wouldn't seem like it would be a reason why you and Slate, having this, had this incredibly successful partnership, would part company. But ultimately, that's why, right? Yeah, it wouldn't seem, uh, especially is if you go back to this founding ethos of not just Slate, but a place like Slate where disagreement, spirited or otherwise, in um, whatever forum is presented, like, say, a Slack channel, is a way, was seen as a way to sharpen arguments, was a way to test arguments before these arguments were made public. And I had always, for whatever the detriments of Slack, I'd always use Slack in that way. And I could cite, you know, three or four, maybe five or six articles, let alone dozens of segments on the gist, but actual articles that sprang from me having a disagreement with some or sometimes all of my Slate colleagues. And editors would say, Mike, you're the only one here who's saying that Amazon should come to Queens. Everyone else wants them gone. Why not write an article? So that's how I the big picture of this. There are the specifics about, like you said, whether a word can ever be used for any purpose by people of certain demographics. But maybe a bigger question people have if they understand the story is, well, why would Mike be so stupid as to even engage in a Slack conversation? So I feel like I have to explain why that good things have come out of it in my life. Good things have come out of constructive disagreement. And I was operating as if on the assumption that, you know, good things would continue to come out of what I thought was constructive disagreement. But, you know, in 2021, things were and have it's apparent things are a bit different than they were in 2014 when I joined Slate or in the, you know, decade or so before when I worked for NPR. So this is other kind of larger trend into which you now fit, uh, and that is people for various reasons uh, taking their act uh, away from a legacy news site or some other kind of corporately recognizable site uh, and striking out on their own. The, the biggest manifestation of this, obviously, over, is over on Substack, where your Andrew Sullivan's, your Glenn Greenwalds, your Matthew Iglesias's, your Matt Taibbi's, everybody named Matt basically is over there now. Uh, they've left other places e- either because they were in similar disputes or in the case of like I think Taibbi just left because he's Taibbi, and he uh, yeah. and, and so you've got that. 
that. Like, I'm bigger than Rolling Stone. Who needs this? <laughs> right. And, and so there's that. And then I've just started listening to this podcast that I'm sure you're very aware of called Breaking Points. And I'm really also very excited that I knew the name of it this time because my students um, uh, in, in the college class I'm teaching, the ones who kind of turned me on to it. And then I would call, what's it called? Blind Spots? What's it? No, that can't be the name. This Breaking Points is not a good name. It just doesn't really sort of stay, stay in the mind. But they, they begin their podcast basically. It's a fun fundraising pitch, but they say we took a big risk. You know, they, their background is with MSNBC and some of these other kinds of channels. It's a two-person team. One's kind of liberal. One's kind of conservative. You barely can tell which on any given day. Um, but they say we took this big risk and we think we think corporate media is hurting America and and spreading divisiveness. And, and then now you are the freestanding gist. You are your own boss. You can do whatever you like. There's something going on here. And I'd like to know what you think that something is. I think that it's for a number of reasons, legacy media is having a tough time or dying. The exception being the New York Times, which is doing a number of things, including mostly great journalism, as always. I mean, are they is there anyone more authoritative than the New York Times? I want to know what's happening in Ukraine. I, I read them, but they also have the uh, economic ballast to essentially hire away all the talent from these other farm system uh, type legacy media. And the economics of just being a newspaper columnist or just being the person who works at a place like, you know, Vox or the Daily Beast or even MSNBC for a couple of years, it's not working out for most of the workers. I don't know if it's working out for most of the people who own the media. So as it's crumbling around us, the people who have established themselves to some degree, you know, we're all our own brand. The people who have 50,000 Twitter followers or more, let's say, can have a shot at going independent, of going solo, of breaking up from the band and being able to uh, pursue their journalism with an audience. The problem is, like, you can hear the problem that your whole audience can. OK, what if you're not at that point yet? Yeah. And that's what I really worry about is all of these big places, big and small, were more than a farm system, were a training ground, were a way for young journalists to learn how to do journalism. And I might sound like the old guy of 50, but I knew a lot of old guys of 50 when I was the young guy of 30, and they didn't say this. Like, it's very disturbing. It's very worrying what will happen to this new generation who, you know, doesn't have the option to put out their own shingle because they're not yet a brand. They're associating with a legacy brand. And if that brand is something like the Chicago Tribune, I say good luck. <laughs> and not just the Chicago Tribune, which is you know bought by some venture capitalists, but a lot of these other places that seem to have their audiences shrinking. And uh, then you you know layer onto it how Google and uh, Facebook have just you know decimated the uh, well more than decimated in the literal sense of the word. It just destroyed the ability for. Uh, sites to make money on an advertising model. I don't know what the next generation of journalism will be financially. I don't know how they're going to be able to, you know, be. I don't know where the next Taibis are going to come from. Um, so, <laughs> I'm, that's a lot, right? Yes, I know, and that, <laughs> that is a lot. And and the idea of the next Taibi, uh, and I say this with great affection for Matt, is scary to me. But um, so. Yeah, I mean, all of that's true professionally and financially. I mean, I think there's sort of another interesting thing, which is 
Well, I mean, to go back to what you said about the New York Times, and I, I think you said something like, what could be a more authoritative news source than the New York Times? There used to be this idea of the paper of record, or to a certain degree, AP was like kind of the wire service of record. There was this kind of sense that ultimately, when history had to consider what went on, there were certain sources that, because of whatever prestige they had, and whatever commitment they had at a conscious level to becoming the paper or whatever of record, um, engaged in their work in that kind of way. And I sort of feel like that's over, too. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what could be of record anymore in a situation where basic kinds of fundamental empirical truths uh, are considered to be moving targets. Yeah. And I think when most people hear that, they'll start thinking of, well, you know, Fox News did that. Thank you very much. But I, I actually think that for everything that the New York Times, to take the most prominent example, tries to do to be an exemplar of the truth, there are other forces pushing against it, essentially arguing truth. Whose truth? There is no truth. What truth? Truth is just something that you define by your status in life as a whatever your demographics happen to be. And I think those are all really interesting and valuable conversations to have. But if where you end up uh, after them is that there is no truth, the search for objectivity, which, by the way, is kind of a hoary uh, notion within journalism, as you know, I mean, journalists kind of search for fairness. But if the idea is that is all that is all a fool's errand. You know, there's since there's since we all can agree there's no truth. Let's just write our own truths. That is weakening the New York Times. That is weakening uh, the AP. You know, I, I heard you talking about serial, the new the new um, Trojan horse mm -hmm. memo letter um, epi episodes of serial, the new season. And you and your guests like the show, and I love the show too. But there was that part of the show where Brian. Uh, kind of question the very nature of how he's always done the job, you know, because his uh, his young charge on that show had the theory that, you know, you can't understand what life is like for me as a brown person in England. And I and it's fair for me to come up with conclusions like I've never believed a whole raft of people who he's, he's supposed to be investigating. And Brian argued back with what I thought was just this, the establishment line, the way I've always been raised in media, which is you have to be open to all possibilities. You have to follow the story where it leads you. You can't close yourself off and say beforehand that I believe X and I don't believe Y. So to me, Brian's just preaching truth in that moment. But then when Hamza, I think his name is, um, you know, comes back at him from more of a, let's say, identitarian angle, Brian has this moment. I don't know how sincere the moment is. It kind of plays well in the radio show and <laughs> the podcast. But he says, maybe everything I thought was wrong. Maybe the way I've been doing it is just a relic of my stature or status or demographics. And again, I would not say close yourself off to that discussion. But no, Brian, you know full well. And the guys who've made the guys and women who've made that show know full well, you absolutely have to follow the truth wherever it takes. You can't predetermine and come in by pre-identifying the good guys and the bad guys. And I think a lot of that is going on right now that we're not going we're going to deplatform, which is, I think is mostly Mm, just a code word for, I don't want to hear your opinion. We're going to do things like deplatform. We're going to decide who the get good or bad people are. Once we've decided that, we'll know how to tell the story. And 
You know, I would normally think three, four years ago, okay, that's not a real trend in real journalism, but it is. It's out there. I see it. I'm worried about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, just a, a number of reactions to that, just going back to the beginning of what you were saying. I mean, I actually think that one of the changes that happened well before Fox News or, or in any other obvious, obvious scapegoat for this was a recognition that journalism had to get a lot more interesting than it frequently was. You know, there was, I'm, I'm like way older than you are. So I remember what the New York Times was like, say, in the late 70s and early 1980s. And it was really boring. And somebody, I'm going to say it was Gore Vidal, and, you know, who's going to contradict me? Somebody like Gore Vidal said that the only hope for the Times is to let Vincent Canby write the whole thing. Uh, and Vincent Canby was, at that time, their movie critic. And he was really one of the very few Times writers who had any voice at all. You know, everything else. <laughs> Was was done in this very kind of turgid way with the idea of creating record, but that's not necessarily an, an exciting thing to consume. And as the rest of the information and cultural environment became maybe a little bit more stimulating, a little bit more entertaining, I'm not sure the New York Times had much choice but to begin to alter its, sta sta its standards a little bit and put more voice into almost all of its stories, almost all of its coverage. And, and that was kind of the beginning of a thing. And, and the other thing that I would say about the, the uh, Trojan horse affair and that whole conversation is, I think it is, and, and you are the acknowledged master of this, possible to hold two contradictory ideas in your mind at the same time. You know, one of them is the one that you attribute to Brian, the idea you follow the truth, you follow the story. You know, and the other one is the one attributable to Hamza, which is there are certain ways in which we are not all hitting off the same set of T's. Some of us are hitting off of T's that are moved way, way back. Yeah. And there are people who will not even talk to us because of who we are. There are ways in which the entire information gathering environment is rigged. It's rigged as I go in uh, as, as a truth teller and as a fact collector. Um, and, and that's not an excuse for some kind of a priori premise. I don't like that stuff either. But, but there is those two ideas exist in a kind of tension which I think the podcast manages to make interesting on its, on its own merits. The, the podcast is masterful in a lot of ways, and the driving propulsive force of the whodunit can maybe subsume all those issues. But the way I look at it is everything Hamza was saying can fit inside Brian's version of journalism. Yeah, of course we're going to follow the truth, being full well aware that the maybe the openings that I would get, this is Brian talking as a white man, are totally different than what you would get as a uh, brown person from the UK. There's... To me, there's no tension in that direction. In the other direction, I do think that it's wrong to stand up and say, here's how I'm going to define investigative journalism. I'm going to come in with some notions of things I know can't happen and didn't happen and who is lying to me. That's going to be my preconceived notion. And from there, I'm going to find out a bunch of things. I mean, we as journalists, we've always been in this situation where someone could say, you know, you believe X, Y, and Z. Why should I trust you? And the proper counter argument is, I'm not going to say... I'm an automaton. I'm not going to say I'm not without bias, but what I can say is I will be extremely fair and I am going to go where the information leads and present what I find as a, as a, uh, to, in order to serve the reader or listener. And, you know, I don't know if Hamza's idea is doing that. It's not just Hamza, you know, Invisibilia had a very similar moment to this in its last season when Hannah Rosen and Elise Spiegel were on the show where Hannah 
uh, and a younger producer got into it on the air. And Hannah did one of these things where she said, you know, maybe I should need to rethink journalism. And it was about doing a report on an incel. And Hannah said, well, of course, we have to talk to this guy and figure out, you know, his view of the world and what he thinks. And the other person said, no, we shouldn't be platforming that. And again, I just call me 50, call me 50, Colin. <laughs> but I just think that Hannah's way of doing journalism is the right way to do it. You certainly be open to what the other arguments are, but you have to be able to tell someone who says, oh, you came in with a preconceived notion and nothing would shake you. You have to tell them, no, that's not true. That's not we uh, as journalists, that's not what we believe, unless maybe now it kind of is what we believe. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that argument happened over and over again, and often as a result of a lot of pressure from readers and people on social media. I mean, it happened a lot 2015, 2016. There was this whole idea, and the New York Times took the brunt of, of a lot of the criticism about this, that if you were profiling a very MAGA, MAGA, MAGA Trump supporter, you know, one of the more far right pros and establishing that he was basically living a life not unlike a lot of other lives around him, which is the real truth about Trump supporters is that they're, they're the guy you really like at the body shop as long as you never talk to pol talk about him about politics. But, you know, he's the guy who tells you uh, how to handle the insurance claim, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that's that's who the, they were. But the, the, the dirty word, the invective was normalize, right? You're normalizing yes. that person. Well, I mean, no, you might be exploring the fact that setting aside his possibly toxic political beliefs, he is leading a relatively normal life. That's not normalizing. That's just reporting. Right. And what is the definition of the norm? It's the mean, it's the average. And yeah, Trump in certainly in the election that he won, didn't get most of the votes. But the mean American, the norm of America, was really close to a Trump voter. It was almost exactly a Trump voter. So the phrases like, you know, let it's I on my show on the gist, I always say, let's not catastrophize the normal and normalize the catastrophic. I think there's so much attention placed on we sh we shan't normalize the catastrophic. And you can't do that without making tons of subjective judgments. But I also worry about the other thing, which is, you know, let's not let's not normalize the catastrophic. Let's not catastrophize the normal. I do think that there are a lot of uh, sources of stimuli coming in that it's pretty clear what news organizations, if I told you the name of the news organization, you're going to be able to tell me how they will react in terms of seriousness to whatever the story is. Now, I'm not even talking about the war in Ukraine, but whichever side, say, of the CRT angle we're talking about, one side is the banning of books. The other side is the teaching of so-called CRT. You tell me the outlet. I'm going to tell you which one they give prominent coverage to. It's not a great thing. Right. And, and you do have to be able to figure out both of those poles. And there is something catastrophic. I, I don't know. I, I was actually, as you know, working in commercial radio for 16 years, and I my show would either precede or immediately follow Rush Limbaugh's show. And I would listen to what he was saying, and, you know, he would be saying to 17 million listeners that – you know, that the Clintons killed this Vince Foster, um, just to pick something kind of old and slightly inert at this point. Uh, mm -hmm. And I would think that's sort of a problem. 
You know, if a if a very high percentage of those 17 million people absorb this message and believe it, that's almost like a news story all by itself, right? <laughs> that large numbers of people are being radicalized to this like super crazy point of view. But but I didn't really know what to do. It seemed to me like something that the mainstream media should cover. That there's this guy who, on a daily basis, is persuading you know a pretty large percentage of the American public to pretty bizarre and completely unsupported by reality points of view. But but I don't know how you do that. I mean, they just, the mainstream media for a long time with Limbaugh, they just turned their noses up. They said he's not worthy of our attention, but he kind of was. <laughs> yeah. And you know, this is a radio guy. I think what the medium is totally lends itself to how much attention we pay. So Dan Bongino, there was a great article written about him in The New Yorker. Yeah. And I listened to him and I listened to Steve Bannon's podcast, Me too. sometimes to check in and sometimes to just have my jaw unhinge. And it's, you know, it is the crazy town you'd expect it to be. And almost it gets almost no attention. But absolutely everything that Tucker Carlson does, and this plays in the Tucker Carlson's hands, that's the other extreme, that every utterance that he he does that is either you know a toe touch or a back scratch of Putin gets so much play that it's almost impossible to ignore it. Um, today there was a Twitter story about Ben Shapiro, and it was that Ben Shapiro made a tasteless comment uh, comparing Joe Biden to Kurt Cobain and Kurt Cobain's suicide. It really was tasteless, but I did say to myself. Okay, now that, you know, whatever, uh, whatever readers of Twitter and whoever read the original article in Billboard magazine, are they better off for having known that? If it was true that there was this steady drumbeat of horrors from Ben Shapiro, as kind of is the case with the Bannon war room, it would be worth covering. But what I think go is going on now is more of little drips of outrage, little bits of outrage porn that don't really push anyone or mold society in the right direction. I think we would have been better off ignoring that Ben Shapiro made a tasteless analogy to Kurt Cobain. I mean, overall, Ben Shapiro's take on Joe Biden and his current presidency, I think that's way beyond the pale compared to this one utterance. But I, you know, I do know that we are attracted. We have this, we have this outrage tropism and the people who are incentivized to try to, you know, build a business around it, um, know how to do that, know how to do their jobs. So I don't think a co constantly being alerted to the excesses of the other side really does much to uh, help the body politic overall. Yeah. We're going to have to go to a break here, although I have to say, isn't Bannon's war room kind of great in a way. <laughs> I mean, particularly, particularly once you realize that it's basically Red Dawn, except that instead that it's about an occupying power, which in this case turns out to be Justin Trudeau and you know I don't know Nancy Pelosi or something, you know. Yeah. But it's about these patriots, and it, he's really almost at the point where he's going. If you're listening out there, the chair is against the door. The chair. <laughs> I repeat, the chair is against the door. You're the blue cow moves at midnight. Yeah. Yes, he's sounding is a great character. He's not uh, a good character. He's a great character, and he's compelling, and he knows that, and the shirts prove it. Right. All right, Wolverines, we have to take a break, and we will be back. Swing sets are empty Like dirt Turn the dark of the night center of this town it used to whirl in the glow of twilight it might look like 
I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. That, of course, is the new record by Michelle Tafoya. No, not really. No, that's the great Anderson Back tune called King James, uh, which I listen to all the time. So with me today is Mike uh, Pesco, the host and now the everything, the czar, if I could use such a loaded term these days, uh, of The Gist, uh, which is a terrific daily news show. I missed it so much while it was gone. Uh, and so I would like reenact special, my favorite Gist episodes with puppets and stuff around the kitchen. Uh, but it's back now. There's uh, terrific episodes all the time. The guy that you had, I guess yesterday, maybe, the NSC guy from the Obama days talking about Putin was saying stuff I hadn't really heard before. Uh, and, and, and I want to um, ask you a little bit about just sort of how you're thinking about the content of the show right now. But before we even do that, I should we should also mention if people listen to the gist in the past, although it's the old gist that you always knew and loved, there are some new features and they're exciting and they have jingles. Here's what one of them sounds like. It's time to trigger beloved gist segment, overly sarcastic corner. It's now time for everyone's favorite segment. It's the Overly Sarcastic Corner. The Overly Sarcastic Corner. The Overly Sarcastic Corner. The Overly Sarcastic Corner. Now, I was asking a question sarcastically to reporters like you just to see what would happen. All right. So uh, I love Overly Sarcastic Corner. And I think you alluded to, was it... um, Partially earnest cul-de-sac or something, one that might be coming up here, kind of a Mr. <laughs> Mr. Peska's neighborhood. Um, I know, I know what you're thinking, Colin. How'd you get John Legend to record a yeah, jingle? It's I actually know. Corey Wara, our Peoria-based uh, assistant producer. I love having a Peoria-based producer. I love. I would love having jingles like that. I want jingles like that. I'm going to get jingles like that. Um, but no, that was really fun. And um, so, but I want to just, you know, when. When you when you do a show like this, um, our shows are a little bit similar. They're not totally similar, but a little bit similar. You either do or don't have to think all the time. Well, what's what's my pole star? What's the guiding light? How do I, you know, how do I guide this show to its proper places? What do I, you know, do I have an overarching philosophy of the show? Knowing you, I'm going to guess you have an overarching philosophy. 
Yes. Um, practically, it's what I'm consuming and the questions I wish were asked in interviews or the angles I wish were taken. So sometimes this gets me, I don't know, branded as a contrarian. Every true contrarian will de will decline the label because that's what a contrarian would do. But I do see around through, maybe um, I'm not seeing clearly, certain agreed upon um, angles or ways to interpret events in the news. This means... Um, and I try to do so humbly and I try to do so where I say to the audience, uh, you might disagree. You know, I might disagree with myself. Check in on me. I change my mind and kind of announce it. You know, I'll do this. I did this on, say, Columbus statues. But yesterday I talked about the the ads about that were taken out by Andrew Cuomo. And I was I was experiencing my interregnum when the whole Cuomo scandal played out. But I just had to. I felt propelled to not do what er I thought everyone, including the New York Times, was doing, which is to say this was a misleading ad meant to convince people that he did nothing wrong. I said, you know, as far as a 30-second ad goes, the four corners of that ad might have loved to uh, implant the inference that he did nothing wrong. But what it's really saying is he did nothing criminal. And if you look at if he was charged and if he wasn't, the answer is he wasn't. And uh, some people who argue against Cuomo will say something like, ah, yes, but even the prosecutors who looked into his actions said they found the accusers credible. And so I, of course, felt like I had to point out, yes, but they were credible in accusations that weren't crimes. A bunch of these credible accusations were we credibly thought the woman who came to us as a prosecutor was kissed on the cheek in a way she didn't enjoy. That's something to discuss and debate. But the reason that we found it credible but not criminal is it's simply not criminal. Anyway, it's a long way of saying I just get so compelled. I'm a big news consumer. And when I start hearing uh, a story portrayed a certain way by both right or left, and that is consistent, I long to find the inconsistencies. I think it's a way to stress test arguments. It also makes my show a weird show. I'm kind of the show where, hey, listen to me because I will disagree with the ideas you once had. In the abstract, you might, you might say, ooh, that's an interesting exercise. But why do no other shows do it? Because I think people like consistency, just like on a on the radio dial, they like the all rock format and they like the hip hop format. But if you keep giving them a mixed format, people won't know what they're getting. And yet this is why the through line is, well, I guess you kind of got to like my personality or my way of looking at the news or something about it where I'm the through line. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm not bludgeoning the audience or the facts, but I am kind of questioning everything in a way that's taken on um, a pejorative sheen. Oh, he's just asking questions. But I really am. And I think I hope from a good place. Yeah, but you're not asking questions. Like that's I don't even want you to use that particular phrase I know. going forward. It's like one it's like a phrase like both sides. These things that should be okay, but they've since been so twisted that you can't say, I do like to look at both sides of an argument, but damn it I do. Well, but I also think that that particular phrase has been kind of polluted by Joe Rogan and some other people like him. You know, you're just asking questions. Yeah, the person you you, Joe Rogan, picked to ask questions of is not someone who necessarily occupies the same status as as some other people you could have picked to ask questions of. Uh, and you didn't do any preparation, Joe Rogan, to ask any of those questions. So just asking questions, you do so much more than that. I think that it's the wrong way to talk about it. And the other thing that I would say, just reacting to what you said, I, I'm now arguing with you about who you are, which seems to be like a pretty fruitless uh, thing to do with another human being. But mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, like I'll give another example. Christopher Hitchens was a guy who 
whose writing, first of all, I found completely addictive. It was just he could just write a sentence. But um, yeah. but also there was some stuff that I really agreed with him about, and some stuff that I didn't agree with him about. Uh, and and that was sort of the fun. And f- for some of us, it's kind of thrilling to have somebody say the opposite of what you think in a really, really eloquent and interesting way that really forces you. I remember reading, reading Leon Wieseltier's uh, review of Schindler's List, which he hated and thought was a degraded and terrible movie. And I'd just seen it and it had wept through the last 20 minutes or whatever. And I thought, how could that be? But, you know, it was just a terrific piece of writing. It was really interesting. And I, I think in the case of Hitchens, you know, I mean, for example, he had a big fan based in the kind of the really hardcore atheist a confrontational atheist movement. But then, like, he would, like, say things that they didn't really think about the Middle East or something, you know? And and they that would freak them out. And I just don't get why it has to freak people out if somebody doesn't agree with them about everything. Yeah. And I do think there was a little bit. I mean, Hitchens knew he was doing this, and he was so skilled at it that you didn't care. It was a performance. Also, his, you know, as a public intellectual and as a guest and a speaker, he was without peer. He would speak in these eloquent paragraphs that I later did some research into how he did that. Yeah, he would actually literally memorize. I mean, he had an aptitude for it, but memorize long chunks of prose. And then when he was asked his opinion, it did sound like it was uh, pre-thought out because in many cases it was. But yeah, I find that thrilling. I find the idea of the op-ed page with a bunch of contradictory ideas thrilling. Of all the magazines that exist now, uh, up up the charts for me is The Atlantic. I think that's the one that has the real commitment to that sort of thing, where they'll publish um, a bunch of people I like and a bunch of people I don't like, and they're usually edited, so we get the best version of all those arguments. I find it... Now, I guess you can maybe criticize the pleasure that you or I get out of this, and sometimes we're talking about issues like nuclear war or, you know, disinformation when it comes to COVID. So we're getting pleasure out of interesting, um, surprising arguments concerning those things. So maybe that doesn't speak well for us on a very deep, um, on a very deep level as good or bad people. But I do find it really interesting and really nourishing for my intellect. And I do try to do some of that without, I also try not to put on an act. Like when I tell you, I do, for instance, Yesterday, I talked about Rashida Tlaib's response to the State of the Union. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have been more interesting had I been more polemic, right? If I had said that Rashida Tlaib, what she was doing was undermining her party and it was selfish. and But I didn't. I didn't come out there. And it was you could criticize it as maybe a little too wishy-washy. But it was my thoughts, which were that though a break with tradition – we're talking about Rashida Tlaib and the squad. What do they care of tradition? And the tradition of the State of the Union doesn't even go far as far back as the filibuster. And as a tradition, it kind of stinks. You know, it's just a boring laundry list with people playing the parts of, you know, adults booing in the audience. Then again, I criticize some of the content of what Tlaib says. So if, if the audience, if your audience now hearing this saying, I don't know if I'd want to listen to that. Yeah, it would have been better if I just either came out praising or blasting Tlaib. Right. Also, if we're on the left, 
we celebrate and valorize the Liz Cheney's and Kinslinger's who break ranks and say, well, no, that's not how I see this at all. Uh, but it, but if Tlaib freaks us out for doing essentially the same thing, saying, well, yeah, I know he's the Democratic president of the United States, but this is how I see it. I see it differently. I mean, once again, I mean, we're just there's a weird inconsistency to all of that. So I'll tell you what we're going to do, I think. I should first of all say, I don't know whether this is evident or completely non-evident to the listeners. Mike and I, Mike and I have essentially no plan for what we were going to do. We had, we had zero plan as of 12.07 uh, today. The show starts shortly after 1. We, we went up a little higher from zero. But what we're going to do, we'll take a break now. And, you know, you, Mike Pesco, will decide. We, we did sort of kick around some possible ideas. I think the one you liked the best, it seemed, was talking about COVID and AIDS together. What can we, what can we learn about one from the other? But when we come back, you'll just tell me what the topic's going to be. And it could be something really different from that too but let's take the break and we'll come back It's time for me to say some thank yous. Gina Amatruda, who is a mighty, mighty Jedi uh, here in Connecticut Public, is my technical producer today because Kat Pastor's off. I think she's back tomorrow, though. Uh, And then um, Jonathan McPants is the producer of this particular episode. Uh, Thanks to both of them. Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, uh, is our guest today. He's a host, but he's our guest. Uh, And he is going to just tell me what we're going to talk about here in the final segment. Does Jonathan get full pay for producing this particular episode? <laughs> he has to work really, really, really hard on other episodes. I, it doesn't even out, believe me. I'd like to talk a little bit about baseball and the negotiations over the season, which has been postponed. First of all, all the negotiations are taking place in Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium. Did you know this? No, I did not. And I thought Roger <laughs> Dean was the guy who did all the Yes album covers. So uh, I guess I don't, uh, you know, there's That's a lot right. I don't so know. Th- The heart of this particular sunrise is in Jupiter, Florida, (laughs) where four teams share this stadium. I just think, you know, poor Roger Dean, or probably not poor, he's probably enormously wealthy. He says, I'm going to slap my name on a stadium that's used for uh, minor league slash summer, oh, sorry, winter baseball. But now the association is with the horrible morass that the owners and the players find themselves in. And what it reminds me as a sports reporter is you remember when Rick Pitino, who is then coach of the Louisville Cardinals, he was involved in some awful things in Louisville. He was getting blackmailed and then news was coming out that he was, you know, having sex on the floor and in the booths of an Italian restaurant. Just a a lot of stuff that no brand would want to be associated with. But the uh, administration or the investigators would do news conferences along the way, either issuing sanctions or admitting to some other horrible thing in the news. And these would emanate from the Yum Center, the the KFC brand Yum Center, where, where the black Blackmail plot was revealed at the heart of the Yum Center. I always thought that was funny. I, I'm still I'm still working this out with with McNichol about whether or not 
Roger Dean is also the name of the guy who did the Yes album covers. But uh, so the, <laughs> our research department is on this. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, uh, I don't know. At a certain point when you were talking about that, I thought we'd veered off and talking about Joss Whedon. So it was very confusing momentarily. Uh, but... Um, you know, to me, as I look at the baseball lockout, and I'm a baseball fan, but probably you know, like a lot of people, my enthusiasm for baseball has sagged over the years. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it isn't quite as strong. And, and As go the fortunes of the yard goats? Or? <laughs> no, I'm not particularly attached to the yard goats one way or the other. But um, but no, I mean, and, and I look at this and I think, as I think I said before the show, to me, it's sort of the ultimate baseball jo- MLB joke, which is that here they're having this vast existential crisis at a time when nobody's the least bit interested. Everybody's completely focused uh, on Ukraine. And to the extent we're interested in sports, we're probably interested in what, you know, various athletes are saying about Ukraine and writing on camera lenses with their fingers or whatever it is they're they're doing. And here you have this sport, which Let's be honest, at this point, doesn't really have a crossover star anymore. I mean, everybody knows who LeBron James is, whether they know anything about basketball or not. Everybody knows who Tom Brady is. Same deal. You know, but there isn't anybody like that in baseball. So in a way, they're having this fight about their continued existence at a moment. Maybe it's good that nobody knows this is happening. Yeah, that's very on brand, I guess, for uh, Major League Baseball. So why I like baseball is a few reasons, but... It's part of a theme that I've been thinking a lot about with it, which is that it's very inefficient. It, if you invented baseball today, there's no way that it would catch on. It's way too slow. The fast twitch muscle fibers are barely ever engaged. It doesn't lend itself to, you know, GIFs or Twitter. And there are so many things in life like that. And I used to cover a lot uh, about gambling. And if you invented any of the table games today, like craps or blackjack, I mean, uh, slot machines are so much more optimized to hit the dopamine centers of our brain. But, and here's the bigger point. I think that we're being undone by efficiency. Efficiency, the word itself, the concept seems good. But if you look at most of the things that are putting our society or culture on a brink, it's that things got too, or they got not inefficient enough. They got overly efficient. I mean, when you breed dogs, you breed uh, illnesses into them. The inefficiency of the mutt is the best model. When you talk about the inefficiency of um, Congress, you know, it used to be that some Democrats were conservative and some Republicans were liberal. It was pre- it was really unsorted. Then it got more efficient, you know, much to, I think, our own all of our polarized detriment. And of course, the inefficiencies, uh, sorry, the efficiencies of Uber, the efficiencies of of Amazon, all these efficiencies are conspiring to make life a little more miserable. So I say maybe we need to engage more in the sport of baseball because it is slow, boring, and inefficient. Right. But one of the ways that it's slow, boring, and inefficient, and this is not an original idea of mine by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, there's a way in which um, the way that it's structured now, and one of the things that's as I understand it, on the table in these negotiations, is that baseball has this odd habit of basically paying more money to people who have become less productive, because you have to spend quite a bit of time in the minor leagues, usually to get get to the major leagues. And then what what is it, six years to, to free agency? Kind of at the point where whatever fast twitch muscles you ever did have uh, are starting to decay. That's when you are actually able to you know, to go and actually make some money for yourself. And and that does seem kind of unfair, even especially probably to players who are kind of good and are going to make it to the major leagues, but probably not, 
you know, ultimately going to be able to last six years and be good for that length of time. And I, 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 there's ways in which they could maybe get a little bit more efficient about that uh, in a way that also would be fairer to people who aren't aging stars. Yeah, think of other sports. So I'll go a little sportsy here, but imagine if Jamar Chase were made never to play for the Cincinnati Bengals because the Cincinnati Bengals could make more money if they just kept Jamar Chase in their version of the minor leagues. Well, that goes on all the time with baseball. These excellent, exciting, next-generation young players are not brought up to the big leagues because of contractual considerations. Most of the problem with baseball is that the owners, they're the ones who make the rules. They want the players to enforce the outcomes that they want because the owners can't make correct rules. Like this rule about contracts makes baseball boring and robs uh, robs fans of exciting young players. So the owners could change the rules, but they won't because of money or the rules, the rules about um, how much Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that you know how sometimes trains of thought, <laughs> <laughs> but there are there are all these. Yes, the salary cap where really poor teams just can't compete. Well, that's just because you've made the rules that way. And now the owners are trying to tell the players, well, we have this rule. We're going to have to put in a salary cap because so we uh, guarantee that teams that don't want to spend money because they're cheap have to spend money. But we also guarantee that teams that really want to spend money can't spend as much. And the players are rightly saying, this is why do you have, what do you need us to protect you from you if you want to have spending on players then have spending on players don't you know have a rule against us getting paid it is uh it is kind of a screwed up situation over there at roger dean chevrolet stadium which we've now established roger dean is also the name of the guy who did the yes albums i'm not crazy um would be great if it were that person you know and and the entire sort of (laughs) branding of the cardinals was about to drift in that direction Uh, well i always thought the line from runaround was uh uh, in and in in and around the lake marlins come out of the sky and stand there no it's not i think it's mountains (laughs) but if it were marlins that would fit right in well, it is weird too because okay, so you're 50, I'm 67. I'm I'm still I, I imprinted enough on the old way that you know now, for example, LeBron James, uh, who everybody I think probably knows who, who that person is, uh, and he's getting older and he's just about to age out of the NBA. He announced this year that he would play for any team that signed his son, Bronny. Uh, and I, I remember looking at that thinking, can he do that? Can he just say that? Can he just go wherever he wants? Well, of course he can. He can yeah. go wherever, you know. But but there's a way in which we, we accepted this other system. And, and there's also a way in which baseball is barely letting go of that old system. Yeah. Well, right. The rule, if you look at the NBA rule book, I, I can't cite the clause, but it's right there. It says LeBron James gets to do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> and the NBA is being hurt by the fact that it's, totally gone the other direction and there are no teams anymore teams are but you know a pale vestige of playing for a city now people just root for the players and you might think that's good but it makes when you know a team loses in the championship round did a team really lose or did a collection of guys who are going to reconstitute themselves next year did they lose and of course it's the latter so yeah I I do think basketball has gone way too far in terms of players just deciding to not to play in order to get to a better situation baseball control the players a little too much until they get to free agency and then they literally have some agency and then you have football which you know is really great for the viewer but is pretty pitiless in terms of uh, if you get an injury you're you're out all the money you could make 
Right. And basically all of all of labor is in a version of this dispute with management across the country. But unlike every other business in America, all these sports leagues are so enormously wealthy and yet they still have strife. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's sort of weird that the the, the you know, most of the good indicators, most of the reliable indicators uh, of sports popularity are not working very well for baseball right now. But the valuation of the teams, for some reason or other, is not in any way affected by that. Um, so, Well, I mean, look at NFTs as an asset class. Do they even exist? We all know the Cleveland Guardians do exist. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want to die before I have to figure out NFTs. Uh, all right. So uh, we have to stop there. Uh, on that gruesome note. Uh, but Mike Pesca's The Gist is back. You should be subscribing to it if you are not. I guess you follow now. You don't subscribe, according yeah. to Apple. But uh, follow where he leads. Uh, he might lead you into some really interesting places you weren't expecting to go. Mike Pesca, for a show with no plan, I think we did pretty well. I th- yeah, I think you nailed it. Thanks. <laughs> full pay. Full pay for pants. All right. Full pay for pants. Uh, and we will be back with, uh, I believe it's Thursday. It must be the nose tomorrow. There you go. Got away from me. I was hoping to find I was justified. I was hoping. To-